don't be so quick to think you have to start driving impact. I think like take that tactical pause, you enter a new organization, like learn the current landscape, build trust, and then you'll be able to more effectively drive change. If you jump too quickly to driving change, I think that's a a value destroying proposition. Are you ready to unleash the potential of your business by growing an unbeatable global workforce? Our sponsor, Relay Human Cloud, helps you maximize this advantage by simplifying staff hosting and services overseas. So there is no need to worry about risk or any process-related issues. At the end of this episode, I'll share a little bit more about how Fort Capital has worked with Relay Human Cloud and reveal a special offer crafted for the loyal listeners of the Fort Podcast. Stay tuned for more. One of the great joys of my life has been building Fort Capital, something that I have loved for a long time. One of the best parts about it is building it with our incredibly talented team across three offices, Fort Worth, Dallas, and Houston, and our team abroad. We've built an incredible enterprise focused around a mission of being the best real estate operator in the world. We really believe the better that we get at operating, the better that we get in investing. We've built some incredible technology that gives us the ability to see data that others can't and operate our company as efficiently as possible and deliver better customer service to our tenants and really everybody involved. If you want to know more about our thesis, I encourage you to go to our website, fortcapitallp.com, where we talk about why we've been investing in Class B industrial real estate since 2016, hyper-focused on it. You can learn how you can help us find deals, more about our technology and and how we think about it. You can see job openings. Highly encourage you to check out our newsletter or follow us on LinkedIn. And you can do all of this by going to fortcapitallp.com. One of my favorite things to do is raise capital. Always been something I love doing. I love putting together deals. But one thing that is always tough for me is putting together the actual pitch deck, which is really important when you're raising capital or whether it's a corporate overview or a track record deck or investor reporting collateral, but putting together any kind of deck for guys like me has always just been tough. And so finding a company that could do it and not only do it, but blow your mind and make some of the best pitch decks you've ever seen was really cool. Enter Better Pitch. Better Pitch has taken the lead and is making some of the best pitch books I've ever seen And if you think that not having a great pitch book is important when either raising capital, showing off your company, showing off your track record, showing off to investors, you're mistaken. I think your pitch book is one of the most important pieces of collateral that you could have. So I highly recommend checking out Better Pitch. They have an incredible team. They will work with you. And if you're a Fort listener and you tell them that, they will work with you on as many revisions as you need until you're 100% satisfied. So go check them out. You sent in three things that were interesting. And this was... Usually, I don't even go here with guests, but I thought this was a really interesting one. You said, while I was in the Marine Corps, I was most proud of the peer recognition that I received, specifically finishing the Marine Office Basic course with peer-selected leadership standing out number one of 288 Marine officers. So my first question is, what did you learn about leadership in the Marine Corps? And like, what do you know about leadership that most people don't know? A couple of comments on it. First, I think the Marine Corps is one of a few organizations left where like, imagine your peer evals if you had to rank people top to bottom, and then you had to tell them like, you're number number 40 out of whatever. And yeah. 
Uh, but I think that's I think that type of just honesty and candor, I think, allowed for for a lot of development for young young people like me. I don't know. You know, this leadership thing for me has not been easy and I've stumbled a ton of times. But I think continuing to be honest with your own limitations is a big part of, of, of being a good leader and then recognizing when you have work to do on yourself. Uh, so in the Marine Corps, I was actually kind of surprised when I ended up getting selected by my peers. And I think about like what allowed me to do that, maybe, and maybe what led them to, to select me among those peers. Uh, and this is at the basic school. So all new all Marine officers go there six months, infantry-centric training, uh, and you get ranked in leadership, physical fitness, academics. And the, the leadership piece is top to bottom. You rank all your peers, one to 288. Wow. And, and they ranked me that, I think, because... Anytime someone asks you to do something, I never mailed it in. I never did it half-ass. And if I was tagged to, to fill a role or fill a billet, I was committed to putting my best foot forward every time and making sure that I didn't disappoint people. And that when I, when I committed to doing something, people knew it was going to get done and not only going to get done, but going to get done at a really high level. And I think that's something that people observed over time. It actually compounded because I, I would get picked a lot when, when you got selected as like a, a company commander in a training environment, you got to pick a lot of people on your team. And I would always get picked and it would have been really easy at the time to be like, man, this sucks. I just want to coast. It would have been great to have not gotten a billet this week uh, and just sit in the back. But every time I never mailed it in and, yep. and kind of had a, the way I say it is like I had to earn my right to have that seat on the bus every time. And I wasn't going to not earn it. Was that self-taught or was that taught at home by dad, by mom? Was that something you learned once you got there or what mindset kind of got you there? You know, it's. I don't know if this is, I, I was not like before joining the Marine, I was in college and you know, college, it's like you have to pick a degree and that's going to dictate what you do the rest of your life. I was a bad student. And this was during the surge in Iraq, 2008. And I was reading the stuff in the news and I was just kind of going through the motions in college. You know, got my economics degree, was a, a AB student with, with putting little effort into it and not happy with like not wanting to go work in corporate America. And I think, so I don't know that I learned it there, but what I knew is like, I, I, I loved teamwork. I loved competition. I loved, I mean, I played sports every season, wrestled football. I loved just being on a team and driving yeah. towards a goal. And like when I was, you know, I watched the Marine Corps commercials. I still got to kill my dragon with the sword, you know, in the commercials, <laughs> but, but I was sold on the ethos, the culture. And, uh, and when I signed up, it didn't disappoint it, for a young person, nowhere else in the world. Can you go at 23 years old? And get that level of So when did you know you were going to the Marines? Like, so this wasn't like as a kid, you always dreamt of going. This was kind of like, I'm kind of an average college student, just fumbling through, don't know what I want to do. This seems like the next best step. That's it. I would probably spend more time in the gym than I would in the classroom. I was really into fitness. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in between your junior and senior year, they had a, it's sort of like a spigot that the Marine Corps turns off and on based on the, the troop needs, the demand for, for officers. So they had the spigot open for officer candidate school. And it's basically like an internship, but it's kind of like boot camp for officers. It's 12 weeks. And you, I went there with 77 other candidates, officer candidates, and 44 of us graduated after those 12 weeks. And you earn the right to have an officer commission as soon as you finish college. So I just knew going into my junior year and going into that summer, people are looking at internships. I'm reading what's happening in, in Fallujah and what's happening in Iraq. And I'm like, I think I'd rather go do that and be surrounded by those kind of people with that kind of purpose and, and camaraderie. And, and so that's what I did. What was being in Iraq like in Afghanistan, A, and how does that translate back to what you're doing today? Like, that's some real shit. I was only in Afghanistan, didn't do Iraq. Okay, you didn't do Iraq, just yep. did Afghanistan. Just did okay. Afghanistan. What was that like? Not fun. You yeah. Know, it went, went, you know, everything that you had imagined. But I, so I was at a little patrol base, spent, spent most of my time at a base with about 50 folks or so. And you're just embedded in these communities. Yep. Uh, I spent time in, in Helmand province between like an area called Musakela and Sangin, 
not a very nice area. People don't like us, right, down there. And But it, it was what you'd expect it to be. I mean, the thing is, like, again, where I, I was part was a human intelligence exploitation team leader. So, like, led the teams that would conduct interrogations and then develop informants. And that was a, a great career choice for me in the Marine Corps because it really gives you a chance to shape the battlefield. You're not necessarily the one that's saying, let's go kick in the door here and move here, but let's understand what our objectives are and make sure we're, we're sort of moving in that direction to accomplish those objectives. All right. Give me like an example. You hear X in an interrogation and it leads you to do Y. Yeah. The, the, like the saying, right, in the intelligence world, intelligence drives operations, okay. right? And uh, so you have to determine where are you going to, what village are you going to go clear? Where are you going to do a cordon clear? Where, where is there a, a weapons cache that you need to find? And yeah. uh, so that's that's what you're finding. And even more importantly, like where who told you where an IB is or how can you make sure you find those things before they, they get us, right? And yeah. it's just a neat way to feel like you're you're impacting the battle space beyond just uh, uh, kicking a door. So that's basically like business, like the better intelligence you get, the more strategy you know how to make. Yeah, I didn't even know that that was a job in the Marine Corps, by the way. Like, I joined the Marine Corps thinking there was one job. It's like, uh, everyone's an infantry Marine. And then I got to the basic school and I learned there's like 50 jobs. There's logisticians, there's admin folks, there's comms folks, communications folks. And I ended up being at the, this bar one night and a warrant officer, so someone who's been in the Marine Corps for a long time, was talking. He started telling me about this job. <laughs> and I was like, well, that sounds really different. And uh, so I changed my selection at the last second and was one of two Marines that got that that designation out of the That's awesome. The company. So, All right. So you serve. When did you get out? 2014. Okay. Did you go get your MBA first or did you go to Wells Fargo first? I jumped right into the MBA program. Was married. Wife was working full time. Great way to test your marriage. Be a full time student, you know, in, <laughs> in your late 20s while your wife's working full time. But it was great. It was a, a great natural pause in your career to go back and retool. I mean, heck, at that point, I'd forgotten everything I, I learned in undergrad. Yeah. Uh, and so, was, and when you go back to college at that stage of life, you know, I talked about not knowing what the heck you want to do when you're 20 years old. Yeah. You have a little more clarity when you're 28 years old and you start to hone in on sort of interest. And so I approached the MBA program very differently than you approach undergrad. Where it's like, I'm here to learn. Did the idea of eventually taking over your father's business start while you were in the Marines or did it start while you were getting your MBA? Or did it start when you were a kid? Like, was this predestined? Yeah. No, on the contrary. We're a family business, and like so many family businesses, we have a lot of not great stories about being a family business. Yeah. And my dad had a partner, right, that he was in business with, that things didn't go well. As a matter of fact, that the week I left active duty in the Marine Corps, I sat in a courthouse in St. Louis County and sort of watched some of that, that sort of, I watched that play out when things don't go right in family business. And so I had always, on the contrary, on the heels of this, I was kind of like, I'm, I'm going to do my own thing. I, I interned in private equity, interned in banking. I was kind of heading down a different path. And my dad, at this point, I'm, I'm the third of his four kids. My younger brother's the fourth. Okay. And we were sort of the last two that maybe had an interest. We were both early in our careers and, and sort of open to transitioning. And he approached us and, and said, hey, guys, I'd, I'd really love it if you'd consider this business. And, uh, and so we ended up, my brother, my dad, and I had a lot of just candid conversations around our vision, our role, the role that the family had in stewarding this organization forward. And I think the conflict that we had had prior in our family uh, gave us a chance to to talk about things that we might not have otherwise talked about. They're the first brother, sister, and you have two olders. They were not interested or they had kind of moved on. Sister was a physician in Iowa, brother's an attorney in his career underway. And it was just down to my, my brother and I. Okay. So you took over in 2016. When did that conversation happen? Like 2015 or 2016? Yeah. During, yeah 15, 16, the, the conversation was, was evolving and 
and it, at the end of the day, my, my dad, he, he really wanted this to happen. And it was his goal to prioritize the interest of the business above everything else. If we didn't come into the business, he told us, I'm just going to give it to the people that are here on the team. That, that's yeah. his mindset is yep. in our industry for background, Chris, it's people think HVAC, plumbing, electrical, these sleepy, you know, sleepy old businesses and the residential service and retrofit side. It would blow your mind to know that some of the, the highest quality platforms have traded over 20 times EBITDA. It's become like one of the hottest sort of sectors in the, the PE world, this residential service space. And in the face of that, my dad's like, I'd rather give it to the team member, our team members, if you all don't want to come into the business, or I'd love to have you continue the legacy and, and sort of carry the torch for us. Okay. Two, two part question. First was, as you were shaping that conversation, do you remember kind of what your like, these are my kind of needs to do it. And maybe your dad's needs, like, what was the conversation? What did you need to hear or feel comfortable with to say, yeah, I'll do this? Yeah, there's the economics piece, because we bought the business for my dad. Yep. So th there was the economic component. And, and by the way, he still works in the business today. And I hope he works in the business till he's 90, right? He, I mean, yeah. he's awesome. And uh, I'm, I'm honored to be able to show up to the office every day. That's so awesome. And work with him. But we, we talked about what the, the economics would look like from a purchase price perspective. But then we talked about like transition, authority, control, uh, the strategy for growth, and uh, did his vision align with ours. And candidly, you hear often in family business about the patriarch or, or matriarch who never takes the keys with them to the grave. They're, they're yeah. 95 years old, re re retain control. They're still approving $50,000 purchases <laughs> in their business. And my dad's the complete opposite. We are so blessed where he's like, I trust you. I want to empower you. Uh, you two are, are competent young men. You you can make decisions. And so that transition happened very quickly, which was something that was important to us. Yep. And fortunately, I don't think we, we disappointed them in the outcomes we were able to, to create. And and be clear, what's the partnership with your brother? Is it 50-50? Is it 50-50 down and everything in our operating business, the okay. business we've acquired since, all the real estate, investment, yep. everything we do is 50-50. And how step or what's the age difference? Like a year? Two, I'm two years older. Okay. I'm 36. He's 33. Yeah. Okay. And then just give a flavor for, it was a $10 million revenue business at the time. What'd that look like? Give a picture of what a $10 million HVAC plumbing business looks like at the time. Yeah. Step into it. 40 team members, single location. You've got your trade teams. Then you've got some department leaders, trade leaders in the business. And then you've got maybe a bookkeeper or accountant. Yeah. And then you've got the the GM or the leader that's that's running it, but maybe some salespeople in there. Too. Okay. And then you said aligned on the growth plan. If you hit your budget this year, you will have 14X it in six years, yeah. seven years. Yeah. Was that the growth plan or was it a more mild growth plan? Like it I would imagine you weren't sitting there in 2016. You're like, hey, we're going to 14X this thing over the next eight years. And everybody's like, okay, go. Yeah. No, was that the all. plan? No, the, the growth plan was more around a commitment to reinvesting the fruits of our labor, the success we had back into this organization and seeing seeing how that could compound and, and okay. unlock value over time. We we were blessed to join 2016. I, I can't take a lot of credit for what we've done. I can take some, right? The team can take a ton, but we joined a best practice organization called Nexter Network. And it's kind of unique when I ask folks about it in other industries. But like nothing like this exists. And, and what it is, we're a member-owned organization. So we own one 950th of this organization, Nexter Network. It exists to serve its members. Every dollar of dues it collects, it, it's full. They hire business process experts. They hire trainers. And they, they create what I call like a process playbook that touches every part of our business, from how we interact with customers in their home to what we do in our call center to how you prioritize calls when they come in. So we got this playbook 
which by the way, 2016, I remember thinking, I remember thinking I was pretty smart. I'm like, I'm a Marine. I just figured out my MBA. I must know a lot. And who's this guy from Nextstar saying I can learn from him? And, yeah. and it was almost the biggest mistake of my life to, to let my ego not allow me to make that decision to join Nextstar Network. So we got this playbook and we just started implementing with rigor around all those processes in that playbook. And what we were very clear to do is, as we started getting momentum and getting wind, going from 10 million to 13 and a half, 13 to 18, 18 to 23, we started to, as we stacked up wins for the business, we said, we got to stack up wins for the people on our team who are embracing this change and driving these results. And so the year we went from 10 to 13 and a half, we started paying 100% of health insurance premiums for team members and their entire family. So today that's, that's almost $18,000 per employee that we pay just for their health insurance. Wow. And we've continued to just add on to that each year as we've had those successive strong outcomes for the business. We've been able to then uh, double down on our people. What'd you call it? You called it Next something? Next Star, Next Star Network. Is that different? Somebody brought this up and I was digging through it last night. Tugboat Institute? Tugboat Evergreen? Yeah. Tugboat has a special place in my heart. In this world, so in this industry where everyone's getting consolidated. I mean, in my market in St. Louis, 14 of our competitors have been bought in the last 24 months. Like everybody is getting acquired and every event you go to, people are talking about, did you hear about so-and-so? He got, he got 10 X, he got 15 X, he got a hundred million, he got 250 million. (laughs) And we're sitting there like, I have zero interest in these partnerships and we want our our head down and we're going to create value over the long run. How do I find people that think like this? And I found the Tugboat Institute, which it's, it's another membership organization but it's kind of like a YPO where the common denominator is everybody is committed to purpose-driven private ownership. Yep. So you go to these events and you're in a room with people who are talking about unlocking value and, and the, the value creation process, not over a three-year fund life cycle, a five-year fund life cycle, but over decades. And that changes the way you think about your business and the way you invest in your business. Okay. So did you always know that uh, you say purpose-driven kind of long-term was this the plan from the beginning? Like what made you be interested in this type of ownership? I don't think, I, I certainly didn't have the foresight in 2016 to say this is exactly what we're going to do. But yeah. I've observed as the landscape has changed over the last seven years since I've been in this seat. And it's amazing to see how the industry's evolved, the effect that consolidation has had on, on all stakeholders, not just looking at shareholders, but the people on those teams, the communities where these businesses are operating. Uh, and I began to think and see a path that nobody was traveling down, but a path that I think uh, you could build a really incredible business if you if you stay true to sort of this this purpose driven long term private ownership. Uh, and candidly, there's a lot of people I'm talking to in the space who haven't yet sold the private equity who feel the same way. And, and I it's it's created a unique opportunity. I've been surprised at the level of inbound interest we've started to get, where we we tell our story, we talk about our commitment to private ownership. And there's folks, maybe like my dad, but they didn't have kids. They didn't have a succession plan. They don't have a team internally that's ready. And some of those folks are re- reaching out and looking looking to us as a, an alternative to traditional private equity. All right, we're going to get into M&A in a bit. I just want to go back. So, all right, you have a meeting with your father. This is going to make sense. I'm going to partner with my brother, which is just awesome. I mean, how many folks and families get to do something like that? What did the first day, year kind of look like? Shadowed my dad initially, literally sat in his office. It's like, what do you do? How are you yeah. operating this business? And that was a great experience. I was just there to learn. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's a, something I've, I've learned in the Marine Corps. You check into a unit too. It's don't be so quick to think you have to start driving impact. I think like take that tactical pause. You enter a new organization, like learn the current landscape, build trust. 
and then you'll be able to more effectively drive change. If you jump too quickly to driving change, I think that's a, a value-destroying proposition. So that's, that's what I was doing. I was learning and then concurrently trying to understand this Nexstar playbook and implement it. And, and first blunder I made with Nexstar was I thought, uh, we brought this trainer on site. We taught this. We have this service system process that we subscribe to that we expect all of our field professionals to, when they show up to a customer's home, deliver this uniform, high-quality, great service process. So we sent everybody through this three-day workshop. Trainer went home. Everybody did the process for about a week. And then a week later, I was like, everybody's not doing it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like, but I sent them to the training. And, uh, uh, and it was a good leadership lesson that not only do you have to equip folks with those tools, but you have to have frontline leaders and you have to have managers who can reinforce and sustain and create a level of accountability that didn't exist in our business. So it was kind of a swing and a miss in my first attempt at Nexstar. Okay. Was, it that, was that the first inflection point where you were like, okay, if we can do this, we can start growing? Yeah. I mean, we saw the results right away with, with, um, we didn't, we were a business that had no process, right? We cared a ton about, and, and to my dad's credit, my dad, the hardest journey is going from zero to 10. I, t- I tell him that all the time. Like I couldn't have done the zero to 10 journey. And I think that that's much harder than the journey we've been on. But he, he was a engineer by background. He was an engineer that went to trade school in the eighties uh, after being a, a professional engineer. People thought he was nuts and then jumped in a service van to run HVAC calls. So we had a business, we had this foundation of like incredible technical knowledge and expertise, but no business process, no structure. We weren't measuring abandoned call rates and wrap-up times, and, and we weren't looking at conversion rates and average tickets, uh, all these different metrics, these things that we measure today. Yeah. And since then, so yes, when I saw the power of Nexstar, it's you're able, you know what you need to measure. And then you know what processes map to those specific KPIs that you're now measuring so you can influence them through the processes you're putting in place. And it just became this really powerful engine where we were able to, to just keep making these incremental improvements and in processes, tightening them up. And as a result, we were seeing those key drivers of our financial success continue to move in the right direction. Is that implemented obviously through a process that y'all have, but as far as seeing the KPIs on a day-to-day, is that some type of software that y'all use or how do you, is it an EOS system? How do you actually get the number? Yeah, we just made a, uh, we went through an ERP conversion. We just went live on it. (laughs) Congrats. Thank you. Yeah, (laughs) catching my breath. Anybody that's been through that knows it's tough. Yeah, we we went live in January of 23, but this was a, we went from like, driving a, a stick shift 1988 Camry, which was my first car, uh, <laughs> to something that, that's much more sexy and powerful. And that platform for us today is called Service Titan, okay. which is an incredible story separately to our Armenian immigrants who came to the US. They're in their late 30s. Their last post-money valuation was $9 billion serving purely HVAC, plumbing, electrical, residential service contractors and garage doors. So it's a reflection. I share that to highlight the value that they've been able to create for businesses like mine by yeah. giving us something that is tailor-made to allow us to operate. So we have real-time visibility. Heck, I can pull up my phone and look at exactly what's happening, exactly what revenue we pr- produce today, so-and-so's conversion rate, an average ticket, and task per call. It's all at your fingertips. And that's a real, real powerful tool. Okay. From your seat, what are like the top two or three, and maybe there's more, what metrics matter in your industry? Yeah, great question. And it varies a little by trade. So if you're looking, talking about HVAC versus yeah. plumbing versus electrical, there, there's some nuance there. I'll use like a plumbing above ground team. I got a plumbing service team. I'm going to look at their conversion rate. So how What's often that? do they walk into your home, 
and leave with additional revenue beyond the diagnostic. Okay. Right. So what we don't like are service fee only calls. So why did Chris Powers call us to his house? Something was broken, but we only left with the service fee. Why did he not choose to accept our repair, our option, our recommendation, whatever it was? Got it. So we want those conversion rates to be high. Then when we do convert, we'll look at average tickets. We'll look at tasks per call. And those will be things like, I might have some field professionals who come to your house and they just go and they just, you had a leaky spigot, they fix the spigot. I might have another field professional goes and while they're there, they're asking you good lifestyle questions. Hey, how's this work? And you know, while I'm here, you know, can I take a look at anything else that you have going on? Or just understanding, you might say, oh, I've got five kids. I run out of hot water all the time, or I've got a water quality issue, or I'm concerned about chlorine or drinking water, whatever it is. There's so many cool things and products and features that we have that if you can couple together someone who's a great technical expert together with someone who's a great customer service professional and some element of sales, you can create great outcomes in an ethical way that's serving your customers more deeply. And so those metrics, of, I look at average ticket and task per call. I might have somebody who has an average ticket that's 2x the other person and happier customers because they're offering all these cool things that we can do in solving problems for them uh, in there. Then we'll look at things like callback rates, like how often rework quality issues, yeah. uh, that sort of thing. Is warranty a big one? Like how much, how much are we having to go back or... I know in like the home building business, what kills home builders is they build the house and then they get warrantied to death afterwards. Totally. We look at, we call it callbacks or yeah, we yeah. Call, look at our callback rates at the team level and all the way down to the individual levels. And to be clear, y'all do plumbing, HVAC, what else? Electrical, all in St. Louis and plumbing, HVAC, electrical in St. Louis are in Nashville. We also have appliance in St. Louis. Those are all under the Hoffman Brothers brand. And then we have a roofing business in St. Louis. Uh, roofing exterior. Was it always called Hoffman Brothers? Obviously, there wasn't brothers at the time. What was it called before y'all? My dad had a brother. Uh, oh, he did? Remember that family business story? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. So you, you're implemented. We kind of talked about the first inflection of growth. Let's call it going from like 10 to 30 million. And was that growth just organic growth where you were just growing within the existing business lines? Or did you take on plumbing or HVAC and that's how you grew? Like, when did you start adding services and really growing the lines that you had? Yeah. Hoffman Brothers was entirely organic. When I talk about our 2024 budget, 141 million of that, 121 of it is Hoffman Brothers, that core business. So organic 10 to 121. Yeah. Uh, and then the roofing business is that last, that last piece. So you're getting into roofing. Getting into roofing. I think it's an attractive opportunity. And PE is pouring in. It's in the early stages of consolidation. Your question again? I kind of am thinking of that 2016, you guys took over, you kind of said we went to 13, 18, 20 yeah. over the, that was an inflection point. Like what got you from like 20 to a hundred or 30 to a hundred? Was it the same strategy just year after year or were there things that started to change as you got bigger and more sophisticated? Yeah. Next was a great playbook up to 20 million or so. Okay. And I think the playbook becomes a little more cloudy after 20, how you scale and what infrastructure looks like, what roles you create. Yeah. And I think going back to those those leadership lessons, I've, I've tried to maintain like a really honest outlook on like, when am I the right person for a role or the seat I'm in? And if I'm not, how do I get people on our bus who are going to execute these functions far better than I can? Yeah. And that was that's really the story of uh, of going from 20 to 110. It's that like we need new skills. We need L&D capability. We need a new safety outlook in how we're operating. I mean, all these things, I started to say, we need to bring in expertise that can do these things that we can't currently, the expertise that's not on the bus currently. And so that's been a big challenge. I mean, one of my my biggest responsibilities is building leaders and recruiting leaders into our business yeah. in the CEO seat. I've got to get the right talent. Okay, let's talk about talent. I would imagine just from my, you know, just listening and, and hearing, 
it's easier to recruit, let's call it at the corporate level. Let's talk about plumbers, electricians, HVACs. What you hear is nobody wants to get into them anymore. It's a dying industry. It's hard to keep people. They're becoming expensive. Let's spend like 10 minutes on labor. How do you think about this issue? This is like what makes the best the best is they can. There's a lot of things, but being able to get retain labor, pay them really well. This is like this is the juice. Yeah. And I think this is an opportunity for us to differentiate ourselves among our, our PE owned competitors and the way that we can create an experience for our team members that that truly values them and their contribution and invest in them. No secret. Trade skilled trades, huge shortage, giant issue. COVID only exacerbated that. I think it accelerated some some folks leaving the workforce. These jobs in the skilled trades today, within four years out of finishing high school, you can be making over a hundred thousand dollars with incredible benefits like I described, free health insurance. We have an 8% 401k match. You start with 15 days of PTO, nine holidays on your fifth year anniversary at 20 and nine, right? So 29 paid days off. I mean, just really incredible compensation benefits by the time you're 22 years old, yeah. right? Really unique. Yeah. And it's also a function that's also driving up the cost to customers, right? Because there's just intensifying competition over this finite pool of, of really skilled, talented professionals. So if pe- people are solving it in different ways. If, if we're competing, we can both just keep trying to differentiate based on compensation, benefit, fighting for the same labor pool. Right. But we're saying, well, we got to start expanding this pie. And so we, one of the ways we're solving it now, Chris, is we bought a, a 40,000 square foot school. Uh, literally, it was a school that was next to us. They were building a new one. We're like, well, we'll, we'll take that one. Hired an 11-year veteran of Teach for America uh, to come in as our director of learning and development. We're graduating our third plumbing class, enter the trades plumbing class that's, that's coming awesome. out of that that program. And it's 20 weeks paid where we just go deep on a certain set of a narrow set of competencies that they yeah. can come out, hit the ground running in a service truck. So we're trying to solve it directly by by creating these pathways into the trades. But I think another way you can win this this sort of war for talent is through the way that you engage and interact with them when they're not, when when they are on your team. And, and what I like to say, Chris, I just make this number up, but it sounds directionally correct to me. Your experience, if you work at Hoffman Brothers, your experience at our company is 80% a function of your experience with your direct manager, with your boss, the person that's leading and inspiring and coaching you every day. And so the question we ask is, what are we doing to make sure that those frontline field managers, the, the, the most important role in our business, those frontline managers throughout our whole business, know what it means to be a leader at Hoffman Brothers? How do you coach? How do you have a difficult conversation? How do you set goals? So one of the other things that we've done beneath HBU is we've created our own leadership foundation curriculum where we've said, uh, these are the competencies you need. We're going to equip you with these competencies, right? And here's the roadmap. Here are the classes. And I think for our team members, it's it's awesome, right? You're, you're a new, you're a field manager. Or used to be an individual contributor. What made you successful as an individual contributor is entirely different than what's going to make you successful now as a leader. Yep. But don't worry, we're going to help you do that. Here's yeah. what you got to do. And so that's how we're thinking about retaining and attracting talent. That 80% of their experience that they have is going to be from people that we've said know how to lead and inspire and coach. Is that HBU, Hoffman Brothers University, different from the school? That's like leadership training that you run. There's entry level, the school you bought, and then HBU is like leadership training? It all fits under HBU. HBU has those three pillars. Enter the trades. One is career acceleration. So for folks that are already on our team, how do we build and enhance their skills in their, their sort of technical field? And the third is the leadership foundation pillar. Did the Teach for America guy build those other components or did somebody else build the two other components that you mentioned? She was a key part of it, Lorna. Okay. Yeah, she, she from the design and strategy stage, she was involved in saying, this is what we think this needs to look like. And at the end of the day, we're, we're, 
we're a good sized business, but we're not a huge business. And yeah. we have a finite budget for L&D. So the question, learning and development. So the question we're asking is, if we're going to spend whatever it is, a million and a half dollars in L&D, where are we going to get the biggest bang for a buck? And where does the business have the greatest need? Because we can't just go 100 miles an hour at, at the 10 different things we'd like to do. Right. I'd rather do three really well. And so that's what we're focusing. How long did it take to build the program out? A couple of years? year? Not a full year. I would need a, Lorna spent a ton of time. So yeah. she's a curriculum design person by background, but we yeah. had to come up with all the learning objectives, partnered with a master plumber to go through that curriculum. So I, months, I think, but it was dedicated time. So you go through entry level and then you, I think you said the second was called career acceleration. Yeah. Do you have to have been, call it a plumber for X amount of years before you can get into career acceleration? Like what are the the different stages along the journey that you can take these classes? Yeah, this we're, we're in the midst of building a lot of this out. Cool. Uh, just went online with a learning management system, but don't think of career acceleration as its own like linear curriculum. Got it. It's more of like a pool of course offerings. So if we have folks that need to learn how to work on boilers or geothermal, it's on, almost like a menu where you can select three credit hour classes, yeah. right, and, and enroll in those uh, that meet a specific need or, or competency building. Okay, so y'all have built this. Do you think that? the future, there's going to be more people in high school that are going to go, why am I going to college and spending all this money going into debt when I can be four years, by the time I would have graduated college, have no debt, a skill, making $100,000 plus and growing career opportunities. Is there any light at the end of the tunnel that this could become a new shift and people thinking this is cool? I hope so. But, you know, Chris, when I graduated high school, they said they were standing their graduation and they they said with pride that all whatever it was 250 students all we have a hundred percent college sort of placement rate and yeah. everybody's going to college and uh, i think we need to change the way we think about the trades and change the way we measure success in high school because i think one of one of the predominant met success metrics is college placement rates yeah. right now why why are we doing we're sending kids to i'll, I'll pick on mizzou right where my wife went mizzou's a great school but you come, you go there, you come out of there with a general business degree and it's, it's you know, congratulations, here's a $60,000 job and you'll get three to 5% raises for the next decade, right? Unless yeah. you, you get promoted and move. It's a very, the, the, the financial outcome is, is, it's very compelling to think about the trades. But I think we, society, you, me, everybody else, we need to change the way we, we look at and talk about trades and high schools need to change the way they talk about trades. Now that we've kind of, we've covered some ground, let's just talk about how, you with long-term ownership would run a business, purpose-driven ownership versus private equity. There's a business for sale. If you go buy the business, yeah. it'll look like this. If PE buys the business, it'll look like this. Yeah. Great example is HBU too. Like it, it, the, the return for HBU, it's a long tail. It might be seven years. It, it, these are big investments, big infrastructure investments, big people investments, graduating these students that you're paying for 20 weeks. And then there's this ramp up period. I mean, your payback is sometimes years away for some of these decisions. And if you're in a, a fund, right? And there's this, it, it, it structurally, they deploy capital and then they have to exit those investments. And what I've seen play out, Chris, over the last five years is in preparation for these exits, I've seen operators, platforms sacrifice long-term reputation, right? They will cause long-term reputational harm uh, for short-term financial gain. I mean, as you know, in the 12 months leading up to an exit, to a recapitalization, every dollar of cost you can strip out of the system, you're going to get paid 18 times for, yep. right? Every dollar of value you can extract from a customer, 
you're going to get paid 18 times for. Yeah. And so how does that show up for a customer? I, I've heard of some companies having goals where if you have an eight plus year old furnace or air conditioner, the company's goal is to convert 50% of those into new equipment sales. Like you can't tell me that is good for the customer in the long run. But if yeah. you're 12 months away from an exit, that long-term reputational harm, guess what? It's the next guy's problem, Yeah. right? And I'm seeing those types of decisions being made. So zoom back out. When we're saying we're trying to build a business that maximizes value over decades, we're not playing these games of being constantly preparing your business for sale and limiting the investments we'll make in our business to those investments that only generate a return before that exit horizon sort of gets to you. Yep. Uh, so it just allows you to think about and operate your business in a very different way. Why do you think that every, I mean, it's kind of the running joke, but every MBA thinks they're going to get out of school and go start rolling up these service businesses, like the HVAC roll up, plumbing roll up. That's like the flavor of the week. Why do all these people think they can do it? And what is the reality that they're going to be met with? Yeah, uh, great question. One, I think that people love talking. Everyone's heard the multiples in the space. If, if you're a if you're a newly minted MBA out of HBS, you've heard about the the twenty x exit or the the recapitalization vehicle that returned twenty x multiple on first money in, right? And so, that, I mean, people are just like these home services people. It's just people are drooling for their their foothold. But the reality is, I think what helped me. I mean, I stepped into this business. Thank God, I had grown up working in this business. And I think I remember my dad made a comment to me, work, like working in the business summer. She goes, he goes, like someday you may come back to this business and make sure when you show up for this summer internship, you know, when you're 16 years old, like make sure you think about how how people are going to think about you at the end of the summer and like yeah. your contribution. And I'm like, thank God I didn't show my ass like <laughs> right when I was 16 years old and, yeah. and, and easily could have done that. But I, I came back to the business and I think the Marine Corps, I think, gave me credibility. The people that I had known for my lifetime, you know, growing up in the small family business, I think there was some credibility and trust there. And that allowed me to move quickly. If I was a kid getting dropped in from an MBA program that didn't know these people, didn't know the business, I, I think it could be a really challenging environment. And, and this is the, our product, right? It, it is our people. It is our service. And like, Right now, the constraint for many companies to growth, it's purely a function of your ability to attract, recruit, train talent. And like in a small business, if you're coming out and, and you're a searcher and you're buying a, a six, seven, eight million dollar business, like that is a roll up your sleeves, hands on. You are recruiting. You are having save meetings when somebody puts in their notice to quit. When a, a truck has a bad accident, you're showing up to that accident site and fixing it when so-and-so's truck finds airplane alcohol bottles on, on the bottom and he's having marriage problems. Like you're doing counseling. Like, I mean, it's, I mean, you're wearing every hat under the sun. And like, I think, I think searchers do a great job in programs. These search programs do a great job preparing you to search and get right up through closing where you sign. But then the day you step into that $7 million business, I think that's something really hard to train. What's a save meeting? I think it is self-explanatory. What do you, how, how do you describe a save meeting? Talent. So going back I've to I've never heard of that. Somebody quits. Right. And it puts in their notice. And you're like, that's a rock star. I want like that person needs to say, I still do it to this day. If someone reaches out to me, one of my managers like, hey, so-and-so said they're moving on. They've got this opportunity. I'm like, set up a meeting 7 a.m. tomorrow. I'm going to talk to them. And that's a save meeting. It's like, me gonna... saying, hey, I care a ton about you. What are you leaving for? Like, how can we do better? What can I learn from this? Yeah. And a lot of times you can make them say, hey, you know what? I, I, I do want to stay on this team. And heck, the fact that I care enough for some of these folks. Right. Yeah. So these MBAs are coming out. Have they, have they been successful in, in buying these? And are they working out? Or are you going to end up buying a lot of these companies from MBAs that thought they wanted to run them? Because like you said, it's sexy to talk about running these things. The behind the scenes of these things 
especially the smaller they get, is usually very sloppy. That's just the nature of small business. There's MBAs are entering into the trades in two ways. One is through the search fund sort of way that you're, you're describing. The other is a lot of platforms, their strategy right, is to, as they, as they buy these businesses and want to exit or transition the founder out of the operating role, they're replacing them with these MBAs, sometimes in bigger, like maybe in 30 or $40 million branches, they're dropping in the IV MBA. So a lot of IV MBAs are coming in under the PE umbrella to help operate locations. A lot are coming in through the search route to buy the smaller businesses, a little bit different game and a little bit different challenges there. I think that the folks, PE, who's going to have the hardest time, I think there are a number of folks, Chris, who are purely playing the multiple arbitrage game. Let me buy a lot of these at a low multiple. Let me put them together and let me sell them f- for more. And I want to hope the music doesn't stop before this, this, I can do this and exit. Well, yeah. guess what? The music stopped yeah. in 2023. And I know of a number of these, these platforms that are really on the ropes uh, yeah. and some that have had their creditors on top of them for default. But in a, the leadership strategy, I think what, what determines in large part who wins and who loses is who's able to operate and integrate. And I think some have done a good job bringing in MBAs and veteran MBAs to really think about operating these businesses and building a depth of, of sort of a leadership bench, but that's going to be the challenge. I think the Achilles heel, Chris, right now, most of these platforms, the founder is still in the cap table. He or she has an incentive to make sure talent stays, people are on board, the ship stays together, doesn't sink. But when these, these next bites happen, these recapitalizations or the, these subsequent sales, and the owner is completely taken out of the cap table, what then happens to the employees who are only loyal to the guy that had been there with him for 20 years? Right. And I think that's where the metal's really going to get tested. Okay, you just teed up the next question then. If you were a seller being approached by these people, whether it's you or private equity or a search fund, whomever, what are questions that they should be asking the buyer to know what they're getting into? You wrote something about this where you said, I don't think most sellers fully understand the roads that they're taking. So what would be some like easy vetting questions if they're looking for who to take, if price, if just getting the highest number wasn't the only objective? Yeah. If you're selling to private equity and you're, you're somebody who founded an HVAC business 20, 30 years ago, like it is well worth it to get a, get a bank to represent you or a broker who can, who can knows this game and, and sort of knows what to look out for. But not all private equities created equal. They all operate very differently. And I think you should get clear on what role will you have post-transition? Yeah. Uh, what rights will you have as a minority shareholder? Will there be a board? Will you sit on that board? What changes are they, are they going to make to compensation and benefits within your team? Understanding their their 100 days sort of post-closing roadmap and how they're going to gonna drive value or not. I just think there's a, a lot that uh, where they are in the fund life cycle. Heck, if, if I mentioned five-year funds, if they're already in their fourth year and maybe you're the last deal or they're, they're set to sell within 12 months, but they just want a quick arbitrage play where they're going to pay eight times for you. And then they're selling 12 months later and hoping to get 18 times. Like, are you, are, when, when are they exiting? Where are they in their investment life cycle? Are they yeah. at the end and you're getting bought? And by the way, there's big implications for value. Because if you're on the front end and they acquire you for six times, you roll into their business at their 15 times, whatever their enterprise value is then. And then all subsequent acquisitions are accretive to you. The four times that they're buying at going forward are accretive to you. If you're at the very end, uh, there's no accretion left for you before that next buy or exit. So all these things have big implications for you on the, the value that you'll create or not. Okay, then now... So what's your answer to some of those questions? You're you're starting M&A. What are you telling people? What do they get if they sell to you that they don't get if they sell to private equity? Love the question. And I I think it'd be 
boast helpful. I'll just sort of share the structure of the roofing business we just bought. 85-year-old, Perfect. third generation, family business. Uh, uh, we we approached that seller I'd known for a number of years, cared a ton about legacy, about what his grandfather had built, about who he was going to partner with, right? And so we we bought a majority interest in that business, uh, got control. We got clarity on what mattered to him. Did he want to operate? Did he want to be the manager? What were his limitations and shortcomings? I think the more you can be candid up front with each other and get clarity on like, we say, here's what we're going to do post-closing. Here's our playbook. We know it works. Are you going to support it? It's going to be uncomfortable. There's going to be change. But as I mentioned a while ago, we'll be able to create wins for your team if we can execute on this thing, for everybody, if we can execute on this thing. And so in this case, we brought in another GM, lined up a leader because he's like, you know what? That's not me. I want to be involved, but not in that way. That's not me. So we brought in a GM, helped him find talent. Then we bought that majority interest. And for him, the mechanism for him to get that sort of second bite, if you will, since we're not going to sell, there's two ways he can get get a return on that that minority interest. One is just through pro rata distributions. We're going to grow this thing like crazy, like we know how to do. We're going to generate a lot of cash and we can distribute it and you'll get your pro rata share. The second way is we just created inside of the operating agreement a formulaic redemption option. We're going to use this EBITDA multiple. And anytime after a three-year lockout period, you want to sell, we'll go ahead and redeem and we'll pay, we'll fund within 60 days that remaining, you know, whatever piece of that remaining interest that you want to sell. And then you could be along for the ride for 10 more years if you want. And again, the the seller of this business is in a chief growth officer role, focusing on cultural continuity, uh, helping us drive different different initiatives, the software conversion that we're going through. So putting him in, in roles where are, that are best aligned with his skills, right? Yeah. Okay. You said we're really good at growing these things. So how big was the roofing company? It was like 10 million. Yeah. Ended up being 12 this year. Okay, great. 12. And you're like, we're going to get to 20 in a year. Yeah. And, and you're really good at this. And we've already talked about it previously, but like, what's the growth plan it. for the roofing business? Yeah. So when we were doing due diligence, we're looking at sort of those metrics that we look at in our business and saying, where are they today? And where do we think we can move them yeah. to? And, and I'll start with sort of the lead gen funnel. Unlike HVAC, HVAC is hyper competitive if you, if you want to get leads. If you get on Google, Chris, and search air conditioning contractor near me, yep. in DFW, <laughs> some contractors will pay up to 150, 200 bucks for that click. You click and they'll pay 200 bucks just for that click on their website. Wow. So paid search has become prohibitively expensive. I actually think it's no longer the best marketing strategy in B2C home services, but that's separate, separate topic. Yep. So for them, they were spending a quarter of 1% of their gross revenues of that 12 million on customer acquisition spend. So they're not spending any money on marketing and they're doing $12 million from being in, in the market for 85 years and having a great reputation. So immense low hanging fruit around lead gen, demand gen, back to paid search and roofing what, what, what costs us 150 bucks in DFW for a HVAC lead, we might get a roofing lead for 10 bucks, okay. right? It's a different different ball game to get those leads in the top of the funnel. Then once they come in the funnel at Ferguson, they had about a 50% abandoned call rate, meaning 50% of the customers who called in didn't get a live person on the phone before they just hung up because it was ringing too long or whatever it was. So if we have, if we reduce that abandoned call rate to sub 5%, we just grew the business 45% by answering those, you know, answering the calls that are yeah. coming. And then once we run those calls, we're looking at conversion rates, we're looking at average tickets. They don't have any third-party financing in place. That's a huge one. When you show up to someone's home and they have a $15,000 roof estimate and you say, oh, we don't have any financing. Can you write a check for $15,000? Well, guess what? Most folks can't write yeah. a check for $15,000. So we're already in process of getting in place uh, integrated financing. So while we're presenting on the tablet, it's right there, the monthly payment. We can get 10-year terms. Right, makes it a lot easier, a lot easier for, for folks to say yes. 
So all these these things, process, structure, financing yeah. tools. And then, oh, by the way, because we have that shared service capability, we have that in-house marketing agency, all your accounting, call center, all the things that a lot of trades folks and sort of founder owners, they don't like to do those things. Yeah. They're, they're really passionate about the trades, not all this, not the call centers, not the dispatch stuff. Well, we can do that really well. Yeah. And, and depending on the business and what their need is, we're taking all that from Ferguson Roofing. So we're, we're taking their call center, we're taking dispatch function, we're taking accounting and finance, FP&A, uh, safety, all these things are coming to HB Solutions Group, which is that shared service resource that will support them. So then they can just focus on those metrics, those processes. So I think 20 million may be conservative, but we're, we're, we're we'll pretty check bullish. in on round. We'll do this yeah, round yeah. two next year and check in. <laughs> Yeah, nobody gets into business for the back office. That's like the most boring part. Okay, real quick then on on shared services. What does the call center look like? Is that what does your call center look like? So that you guys aren't missing calls. I know what the small guys. It's like a guy driving around in a truck. He's got a cell phone. If he's yes. talking to a customer, he's not answering the lead. What do y'all have? Yeah. Great question. We just built out a twenty thousand square. We bought the building. My real estate business said we we did a a reset on the first floor plate, 20,000 square feet, spent almost as much on that redo as we did on the whole property, but converted it into class A, super nice, all glass, opened up exterior natural light. When you walk into our office, I'm actually proud that people that walk into interview uh, uh, say, this doesn't look like any HVAC company I've ever interviewed at. Yeah. And that's what I want people to think. And yeah. I want to create an environment and experience a level of pride and professionalism that accompanies working in that environment. So you walk into our call center, it's awesome. It's it's really great, nice, great space. But we've got about 25 or so agents in our call center. It's a tough business to staff for because it's seasonal. And is it domestic or international? All of our inbound is answered onshore. We do have a global team that sits behind our shared services, yeah. uh, mostly in non-customer facing roles. So think cool. like AP, AR, filter shipments, a lot, lot of admin roles. But we do take overflow calls in Manila, and we do do some outbounding to schedule. If you're one of our subscribers for a monthly maintenance plan and it's time to do your maintenance, you might get a call from somebody in our global team to say, hey, Chris, time to schedule a maintenance visit. What day works for you? But all of our inbound, we try and keep the goal is roughly 90% of that. We want to be entered onshore. So that's sort of our staffing north light is like we got 90% of our inbound calls. We want to be onshore. So you don't ever miss a call. No. Like, how would you shoot. miss a call that all 25 agents are on the phone already answering calls and that one just doesn't go through? It's crazy when summer, I, I remember the worst call by, and we had almost 2,000 inbound calls in a day where freezing, frozen pipes, it's cold weather. It's like Valentine's Day two years ago. <laughs> and like, you just can't staff to answer 2,000 calls yeah. in a day. But now with this, we have two partners. So call comes in. If we're, at, if we're at peak, everyone, all 25 agents are on the phone. The queue, there's a queue. But I mean, we have sometimes during that, it was like up to 120 people in queue. Yeah. Now, once you get above a certain queue threshold, It'll roll over to our global team that's overflow. Once they're at a certain queue threshold, it rolls over to another. The third sort of catch-all is a, a company that also has a global team, but they can book calls for us. Yeah. So ideally, there, there's unlimited capacity for those surges. All right, real quick. I want to go back to Google real quick. So you said an HVAC lead could cost 150 to 200, but you also said that's probably not the future. Yeah, uh, yeah. What is the future? Just having a great name in the market? Or are there other ways to capture these customers? Paid search, it's it's like a drug and people built their businesses on it. Yeah. I mean, Google is a live auction bid system. Yeah. And you can get in there, you need calls, just more money, up your budget, up what you're willing to spend, what yep. you pay per click. But that is not sustained. It's become cost prohibitive. So the best performing keyword campaign that we run today are our, are our branded keyword campaigns. So what does that mean? We want people to search 
Huffman Brothers, not AC contractor near me. Yeah, yeah. So take that budget where you might have been spending whatever, a million dollars on paid search a year and say, you know, what, we're going to spend 500 of that yeah. on getting people to search Hoffman Brothers instead of AC contractor near me. Well, how do you get them to search Hoffman Brothers? All the branding stuff, TV, yeah. radio, sports sponsorships. We also do a lot of gorilla stuff, which is great. Nobody in the home service world, some of my favorite uh, <laughs> marketing, gorilla marketing tactics tactics are with micro-influencers. So we've got mommy bloggers. I got lovely, lucky ladies, the babbling blondes that have 15,000 followers, 12,000 of them are in our service area. And they talk about how much they love our uh, home service plan and uh, the service we come out. And uh, that's been such a great gorilla way. And it's super inexpensive uh, that we, we're now managing. We have partnership managers that are managing all these influencers in, in the market. So I love it. How important is a Google review or a review in general? Like I know you have like 20,000 plus that are, I think you said five star above or 4.9 or above. Yeah. Are they important? Average rating four nine. Yeah. I mean, it's a trust signal, right? People that don't have a company already that they're ready to call. I mean, they're, they're doing the research online. And I mean, you know, if you see a company that has 200 ratings and, you know, 3.8 stars, or you see somebody with 10,000 and 4.9, what's a bigger, bigger credibility signal, but I I think it matters. Okay. Is B2C harder than B2B or is it just two different businesses? Yeah, if you slice the trade, so if you're a searcher and you're looking at a HVAC business, there's a couple of dimensions you want to look on, right? Because I think this this is a huge determinant of value and willingness to pay by private equity and others. There's sort of service versus new construction. So servicing existing equipment versus building new buildings. And then there's residential versus commercial. The most valuable segment is residential service. What did I say? Resident, yeah, residential service side. So you want to be yeah. the service and replacement and residential. The least valuable are the either new construction dimension. Yeah. Uh, why is that the case? I mean, imagine somebody comes to me and says, Chris, I'm building 60 homes over in Fort Worth. Come bid on this. Probably one of six, seven, eight mechanicals that are bidding on this project that we all submit our numbers, they punch them into the spreadsheet. Who do they pick? Yeah, this lowest one. Lowest one every time. Yeah, and if I go back and I want to attract the best people, best paying benefits, big investments in our people, I can't build a business if I'm just winning jobs because I'm the cheapest guy. Yeah. I don't want to be the cheap. So I, do you even do that? Zero. You do zero new zero. construction. Right. If you're a searcher, interestingly, so like if you're looking at a business that's, you know, 50% new construction, 50% service and retrofit, you assign a very different multiple when determining the enterprise value to that new construction component versus the service. So you can actually get, I think it's if you're looking for a business to buy, it's a great place, except some businesses with warts, because you can get a good deal. If you're saying I only want the pure play, 100% residential service and retrofit, well, guess what? Everybody wants that. Yeah. And you're going to pay for it. <laughs> so like, I think there's actually a good way to get some warts with some of those other business mixes that are maybe a little less favorable. Okay. You said in a tweet, you said, when you're evaluating an acquisition, consider these two critical dimensions, more recurring versus less recurring and more recession resistant versus less recession resistant. I get the more versus less recurring. More recurring is good. It's kind of like a SaaS business. What would make something more recession resistant and less? Dallas is a bad example because it could be a tough market. People are still building houses here. We just just keep humming along, baby. Uh, But pick other markets uh, in the country (laughs) uh, that maybe aren't as resilient. But if you look at when interest rates rise, there's these economic headwinds. People might stop building houses. They might stop pulling new construction permits. New high rises might not go up. But it doesn't matter if we're in the middle of 2008 and the world has gone to hell, your air conditioner breaks and it's July, Chris, I'm betting you're going to move heaven and earth to get that air conditioner replaced as soon as you can. It's true. Right. So it is non-discretionary. And similarly, like plumbing, right? You lose hot water. You can't flush your toilet and you have a sewer or or drain backup. Like that is where we play in that non-discretionary segment. 
So if you look, I was doing that in the picture of look at all these different residential services that people are looking at. And I think as you're thinking about an entry into these other residential services, those two dimensions are really important. If, if the economy gets really tough and you're a tree trimming business, pretty easy to say, you know what, I'm not going to trim my trees this year. Yeah. Right. Uh, but again, that same house is going to say I need air conditioning. Okay. So I'm assuming like electrical, you got to have electricity, plumbing, your toilets and bath got to work. HVAC may be the most important. Well, people probably need water before they need cold air. <laughs> Roofing, you have to have shelter, food, and whatever the three things people need. Are there any other interesting lines that fit that less recession that we haven't mentioned yet? Or do you not want to give up the playbook? Yeah, no, I, I think there's there's a lot. And by the way, it doesn't have to be, I'll, I'll pick pools. Pool maybe you could say is is maybe exposed to some cyclicality. But maybe pool owners are typically higher income and, you know, things would have to get pretty bad for 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 you to say, you know what, I'm going to stop cleaning my pool right now. Yeah. Or uh, So I, I think there's still I, I like pool service a ton. There's been some big successful players in foundation repair, pest control. That's another one. People hate bugs. My, if my wife sees a giant bug in our house, like where <laughs> she's on the phone instantly and they're coming out again. Right. So I, I think there's a lot of good home service verticals where the demand remains pretty strong. So the pest control sales method is to go at midnight when everybody's asleep and drop cockroaches next to the house. <laughs> and uh, it's a low cost way to get um, customers. All right. I just have a quick idea for you. And then I want to talk about growth a little bit more, but I've had this idea forever. I'm sure you've thought about it. You might have something like it. Only rich people have house managers where they don't like... Even myself that's in the real estate industry, when our like plumbing breaks at the house, we have commercial contractors that do plumbing. I don't have a guy that can be there in like two hours or else I'm pulling him off a job for my company and I keep my life separate. I think there's like this huge room in the market for this like house manager that you pay a subscription for. And when the appliance goes out, the heating goes out, whatever, I like text on an app and I'm like, hey, I need help. I don't want to go through the phone book. I don't want to Google Hoffman Brothers. I just want to like go to my app and get this done. Is this a real business or not? Because you have all the components of it. So you might say this is why it doesn't work. One house manager probably costs for rich folks like, I don't know, 150 grand a year just to pay them plus all the stuff they have to do. If you could spread that out across like 30 houses, I would probably pay three or 400 bucks a month to have on-demand fixing of my pest, my air filters, my everything. Is this a real opportunity? I think there's merit there. I just got back from Colorado and we were at a house, rented a house there in Breckenridge. Yep. And they're doing it in short-term rental. I mean, they have property. These folks that yes. own these houses are dealing with everything in the house. But it really sits just to that investment property sort of rental market. But for I, sure, that model, I think, absolutely could be adapted. Why do people not have property managers for the houses that they live in that they own? It doesn't make sense to me. Like, one, if let's just say I had the app and my H, everything was tied to Hoffman Brothers. And you're like, look, we're going to get some recurring revenue. So we'll give them the services for a little bit cheaper. Everybody, nobody likes like you. You had your, he had his whole house flood this week. I don't know how well you probably called an insurance agent, but like it's not easy to go through and figure out who you're going to use. So if somebody's listening to this, I think house manager for the houses you live in is a huge business because it's especially during peak season. It's not easy to get people to your house all the time. Yeah, I buy that. You just said the important thing for that business owner, that entrepreneur is to curate a really high quality network. For sure. 
for sure. And then you're going to have to, which typically won't be the least expensive. So you're going to need folks who are willing to pay for that sort of premium, all-inclusive service. Well, I'm giving you the idea of a lifetime. You take this and call <laughs> call it Hoffman Brothers House Manager. And what it really is, is a front-end consumer app for all the services you're already going to give them. And we'll talk about splits and everything later, but my team, Chris, I love the idea. My team rolls their eyes every time I come back to the <laughs> I office. Have an idea. New idea. I'm back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, growth. You're going to do 140 million this year. You're in uh, St. Louis and Nashville. You're in four different segments of the market: electrical, HVAC, plumbing, roofing, and appliance. Electrical. So five. Yeah, yeah. What does the next ten years look like? Like, do you have a playbook for for what you want to see happen? You're doing M and A. Like, what? If we were sitting here 10 years from now, what might have happened? Yeah, great question. We just had our offsite planning for 2024. And this acquisition thing's new for us. We did the first one, but uh, at the end of the day, we are capital constrained, right? Yeah. So we're going to be very selective. So you're never going to bring in outside We're money. not bringing in outside capital. Okay. Which means I have like an internal leverage limit. And that lever- leverage limit for me is two times cash flow leverage, right? So I get okay. total bank debt up to two times my EBITDA. Uh, on a pro forma basis, if we're looking at an acquisition, uh, but that gives me some room because a bank will go up to three. But like, hey, I don't want I don't want to go to the limit. So if I need a margin for error, right? If things get tough yep. for whatever reason, so that that's the the sort of capital limitation I have is two times cash for leverage. So we have to keep growing if we're going to continue to be acquisitive. Yeah, uh, we're very low, uh, almost no debt other than some vehicle debt. So we're we're, we're in a great, well capitalized to say we've got a lot of room with those two turns now to make some some good things happen. But I care less about. It's not about like picking a big number that's way out there. We do that to have like a big goal. I would rather miss that growth goal if it means we're not compromising or sacrificing the quality of businesses, the fit of those businesses that we're thinking about bringing onto our platform. The other piece I I say, even when you look at organic growth, I don't want to grow so quickly that culture, quality, reputation become casualties on the side of the road. And I think it's easy to do that as you grow quickly. So it's how do we how do we govern it and make sure that the th- those three things remain really strong and really healthy while we also balance this this sort of high growth outcome and that that's a tough thing to do so to answer your question ten years from now I hope we've stayed true to that and that yeah. we're still positioned as a premium high quality organization with a really strong culture and we didn't sacrifice that commitment in pursuit of growth for growth's sake or ego's sake yep. uh, and I think that's my job to make sure that we're not doing that we're being very thoughtful. Do you think it's more though market driven, like getting into new markets, or is it more getting into new lines of business or both? That's a great question. It's interesting. If you look across the country, there's a couple home service operators in single markets that are in like the $250 million range. There's one in, in Chicago that's 250. There's one in, in Phoenix that's 250. DFW does. And I think they've got folks in that 150 range or so here. But so in St. Louis, as we cross that $100 million mark in that one market, I think you reach a point where where there will be some saturation. So if we're going to sustain that high growth, we're going to need to do it in other markets yeah. or with new service lines in that existing market. Yeah, That is exactly what you just described is the two ways we think about growth. We have that in our strategic plan. We have that. We can, we can take our existing service lines and go to new geographies or within our existing geographies, let's serve those customers more deeply. I love it. And then you can execute M&A. All right. I want to spend just a little bit more time going back to family for a second. So your partners with your brother. And your dad still works there. Can you actually, so how does the org chart look? There's you and your brother, and then what role is your father in? Yeah. Uh, so well, my brother partners or? No, he, he's a project manager of sales. Okay. So when he, he's probably in most of the year, but he'll, he does coaches, high school racquetball, does their outdoor adventure I club. We'll go to Alaska for four weeks. Yeah. But when he's in town, he's 
project manager. They'll put bids and estimates on them. So he could show up to your house to give you an estimate okay. for an HVAC system. That's amazing. That's, that's, and he loves it. Like nothing he would change about that. Okay. Uh, my brother's one of my six direct reports in the business, okay. uh, in, this, in, in the CEO seat. And the, the good thing in a family business, we're 50-50. And to make things simple, we say, you know what, Joe, we're, we're going to compensate each other equally from a W-2 perspective. Because the bulk of value creation that, that will happen for you and I won't be because of our status as W-2 employees. It'll right. be because of our shareholder status. Yep. So let's make sure that we're, we're putting ourselves in the seats where we can create the most value for the organization. And let's remove the incentive to jockey for title or position maybe for a different W-2 outcome. And unfortunately, yeah. neither of us have huge egos and actually love the level of candor that we have. I mean, I'll walk out of a meeting and like, uh, he'll jump right to it. Like, you should have done this better, bad choice of words here. You should yeah. fix it. And I love the level of trust we have where it's like, we're both good coaches and critics in a healthy way of each other. Yeah. Do you ever have to break a tie or like a disagreement? I love this question. We're actually in the middle of uh, operating agreement revisions today. <laughs> uh, that are like, man, you could, that's like the thing that takes forever to get done. And, yeah. and you want to rip your hair out reading through that stuff. But we put together an advisory board, which is not for you sure. So not legally binding, but we in agreement that that, that sort of serves, we want to treat it like a fiduciary board. And if we have a disagreement, uh, we're going to look to those folks. But part of the operating agreement revisions that we're creating now is is converting to a fiduciary board. Yeah. And we're going to agree in advance on who those directors are. And yeah. in the event there is a disagreement around strategic direction or otherwise, we both agree that these are the folks we're going to listen to. We're going to have more independent directors on there. Than, than How'd now. you put together the initial advisory board? Just people that were in the industry, people you knew and trusted, or were any of them people you'd never met before? Some no, I've never met before. Okay. And, and what I said was, I said, okay, here's where we're sitting today. I think I put it together and we're like 50 million. Yeah. And I'm like, here's where I aspire to go. What knowledge gaps do I have that might prevent me from getting there? Or what expertise do I need to make sure we get there in the right way and as quickly and efficiently as possible? So then knowing that that's the, these are the skills I need, I, I looked out and said, who the heck has these skills and who's really good? Who are the leaders in the space in our market in St. Louis or in the region? And then I either called folks or through my network said, hey, I would love to get a phone call with this person. And we put together a board of people and, and uh, everybody but one said yes on the first go. Someone out of town said, I'm, I'm too busy. You lost Chris. Uh, uh, but it's great. And I, I told them, we sat in the first meeting, Chris, and I go, listen, I, I didn't put this board together so you all can sit here and tell me how pretty my baby is. Like, yeah. I, I want you to point out all the warts. What are the things I need to fix? Where am I failing? What do I need to do better? And that's the tone we have going into these meetings is let's challenge me, push me. I, I haven't gotten a performance review since I left the Marine Corps, but I want it, right? I, I, for me to get better, I need someone to point those things out and challenge and push. Yep. I love it. Okay. You are a, uh, let's call it a permanent company. It's not going anywhere, which means you're going to have two choices pass this down through the family or turn into an ESOP or something of that nature. Maybe there's more choices that I'm not thinking of. How old are your kids? Uh, four and four months. Four and years your, do, does your brother have kids? One and one due in February. Okay. So <laughs> this would be like very far out planning, but a lot of questions that came in were like, how does he already think about succession? The answer could yeah. be like, we're not thinking about it yet. Yeah. Do you have a succession plan when you think about this as a company we're not selling? Two ways to answer that that are interesting. One, as we're doing these operating agreement revisions, yeah. it's great to do them before there's names in the boxes. When you're talking about what what's required if a family member is going to enter the business, it's great to do that before we're talking about my daughter, Penny. Yeah. The, right, before there's names in those boxes that yeah. you're talking about. So that, that's a fun way to think about and get aligned on those things before you're making those decisions. I think earlier is, is definitely better. There's a third way. So you, you mentioned ESOP. You mentioned, what was the other one? Family taking over. Family taking over. Marketing team doesn't like that one because I have two daughters and if they had to change it to Hoffman sisters. Oh, yeah. Be, be a lot of work. 
but the third is just outside professional management. And there's yeah. some phenomenal businesses where you teach you teach your family how to be great owners and stewards. And that doesn't mean you're the manager or the operator, but you understand what it means to be a great shareholder. And yeah. I think that's, we've got work to do to make sure we're best in class with respect to governance. Yeah. And if we do that, you can be family owned, but not family operated. And there's a lot of wildly successful businesses across the country that do that really well. I love it. You've been really good. I've just picked up since here is like, if there's something you're trying to do, you found like maybe not an institution, but a company that is good at training you on doing X. So a company that's good on training you to be a good shareholder, a company that's good at teaching you to be a purpose-driven company. Next star, right? Yeah. Talk about next star. Yeah. So do you, when you have these ideas, do you just go to Google and go, there has to be something here that exists? Or do you find out through YPO or just through people that, hey, these things exist? Because I haven't heard of any of these. I've heard yeah. of different ones, but usually I've heard of some of these and you're, yeah. you're talking about killer companies here that I've never heard of. How do you find them? Yeah. I think a key ingredient for, for any leader who's going to be successful and build something, particularly if it's something they haven't done before, is you need to have like a really just intellectual curiosity. Yeah. If you don't have the answer, like be curious, find it out and like go seek out these answers and look, look ahead. Be like, don't wait till you get there to say, how should I be thinking about the business once I am there? Like so I, I, my wife probably hates it. I, I, I spend way too much time with earbuds in, reading books, looking at this dang device. I, I probably need a New Year's resolution where I'm not turning it on. But I, I just seek out those answers. And YPO is great because it's kind of like a, all these things together are great and they all add value in unique ways. Yeah. And I think you got to find what are your biggest pain points and then what are those organizations that can fill or address those pain points? YPO is great. It's kind of a create your own journey, I say, right? I mean, there's yeah. so much stuff you can do, but they have like very specific stuff that I might be in, you know, family office structuring, family business events, like they're the multi-generational events. Like, and so I just kind of pick from the menu on, on, on the things that are aligned with sort of the challenges I'm facing. Yeah. Um, You've been doing this eight years now. You've built an incredible company. If you just went back and you said these, this was like one or two mistakes that I would have done differently or like, we learn from this. Is there something that comes to mind over the eight-year journey? You're like, God, I'm such a bozo that we did this and, and learned from it. Yeah, I, th I think I would have invested more and earlier in some of those, uh, the frontline leader roles. I think yeah. that's just like, when you start to drive change, and that's a couple of ways I'll, I'll think about that. I think I think it's better to be just more transparent around change rather than like kind of like being like, ah, indirect or not being fully transparent with the intent or the direction we're going. I think getting comfortable with conflict sooner is better and just getting clear clarity and putting everything on the table with your team around this is the direction where we're going and I need you to support it. Right. Okay. Or, and if you can't support it, you know, I'd love to help you find the next opportunity where you can. So I, I think just getting getting alignment and clarity sooner and having harder conversations, perhaps a little bit earlier and leaning into those uncomfortable conversations when folks are resisting change. Yeah. I think that's that's an important thing I would have done sooner. And then the other piece, when we start to drive the process change, I, I underestimated the importance of having all those frontline leaders bought in on that change. Oh, because baby. without that, you can send everybody to all this training, but without fail, it will not be sustained unless there's leaders on the front line who are bought in and know how to reinforce and create accountability around it. Okay. So real quick question then, how do you get people bought in? Because this, uh, I think you just nailed maybe one of the most important parts of a company in general. Any new initiative, software, training, process, you've got to get people bought in. And that can't be you coming back from Dallas going, I met with this guy, Chris, and he said yeah, we should yeah. do this. And because you have the ability to make it happen, you just assume everybody's bought in. How do you get people bought in? It, it, we don't have that figured out entirely. Yeah. Right? But now it, it looks like 
when we interview, we're telling folks before they join our team, this is how we operate. This is what we do. Are yeah. you aligned? Like, let's screen for this. Let's save ourselves the headache of, yeah. of extending someone an offer and then telling them how we operate after they've joined our team just because they have good technical skills over here, right? Yeah. So I think you can screen better to make sure the folks you're bringing in are open and ready to do it. But then I mean, when people do start, I'm their first seat, I'm the first hour with everybody that joins our business. And I talk about what we do, what we're doing, what we stand for. And then what I talk about at the beginning is what's in it for them. I'm asking you to do all this change. It's more work to do what I'm asking you to do. It's harder. And I'm going to challenge you. You're going to have to push yourself. You're going to have to grow. But we have free health insurance for everybody. We have an 8% 401k match. You get 29 paid days off. Yep. We make huge investments in your training and development. Like you can't get that in a lot of businesses in our industry. So like the good comes at the, the expectation that you're buying in and delivering and doing your part. And, and I, you know, everyone, there's a lot of companies that use that win, win, win framework, Chris, but everyone, you know, the employees win, team member, customers win. Like, I think when you look at our story and what we've done, I mean, that's showing up in a very meaningful way. And the example I give when I talk to team members, it's like, there's no world that exists where all three of those groups, team members, employees, the business, or team members, customers, the business, aren't moving in the same direction. We're all going to win together. We're all going to lose together. Yeah. And it's not just my job to make sure we're all winning. It's your job. It's your. It's everybody's job collectively to make sure we're moving in the same direction. If you look 10 years from now and with all the roll-ups happening and just in general, are there going to be any more guys in a truck servicing HVAC and PE? Or is, is the 10-year vision that obviously it's not everybody but you are going to be calling a big professional company now to come to your house and fix it. It is no longer going to be some guy that you met at a Home Depot that's just going to come by and fix your air conditioning. Yeah, I think there'll always be small shops and organizations that exist. It'll be referral, word of mouth, but it's getting way more challenging for those folks to exist and operate. And uh, what, what do I mean by that? It's used to be, right? Go back to the 80s when my dad started, you take out a page in the, uh, in the yellow page or the phone book right? And maybe you did TV, maybe you did radio, you sponsored the church bulletin, right? And like, that's how people made decisions. Today, it's like all the paid search channels we talk about, all the media buying, it's all getting incredibly expensive with the influx of institutional capital. So to attract new customers is just harder. And there's way more sophistication that exists there around yeah. these digital and other channels that if you're a small guy or gal in a truck, it's just harder to get that phone to ring and get in front of customers. And the other thing is service expectations are changing. Like we have technology where it looks, it's Uber-esque. You know, you, you get your service appointment, you see the truck on the way, you, know, you see their picture, you get their bio texted, like all these different, th these technology and service touch points that if you're the person starting out, that's just harder. And, and th those folks can add great value. They're oftentimes less expensive, but the, they're gonna, it's gonna be hard for that to scale and for those folks to connect with the, the homeowner in DFW who doesn't know anybody and is just getting on Google. Yep. That's not, they're not gonna connect. So yeah, I think it's getting more and more difficult. And I think those folks are getting crowded out and, and disappearing over time. All right, dude, I'm rooting for you. This has been awesome. Thanks for coming in today. Hey, appreciate it, Chris. Great to be here. Jason, as we sat back years ago and were envisioning where Fort was going to go, we realized we needed to bring in a global workforce, a remote workforce that could work with us. And a few of the reasons why were obviously cost, which I think is the first thing that comes to everybody's mind. But then when we talk about shifts, a 24-hour shift, and maybe you can go a little further there, and some of the other benefits that we've realized as we've gone on. And now we sit here today in 2022. At the time we first had this was maybe 10 employees. Now we're at 46. 
And as you think about the next chapter and how we're scaling, it's almost inconceivable that we would do it without Relay Human Cloud. So can you just talk a little bit more to how the shifts work at Fort and the productivity and some of the other benefits that we've learned about working with a, a global workforce? It's actually been pretty transformational from how we think about how we're going to not only get stuff done today, but how we're going to get stuff done in the future as we grow. And so when you start going down that path of thinking about you're going to start working with people on the other side of the world, right? There's a lot of questions that come up. How are we going to do it? How are we going to train them? How are we going to uh, manage them? Who's managing them? All those things come up. What we found with Relay Human Cloud was that all those thoughts had already been taken care of and that we could focus on what type of talent is there that can join our team? Does it fit our need? And once we saw that that all that thought and energy had already been put into the operational part of managing and running a team and the thing that we focus on here locally, then it was just a matter of finding the talent. And what I think that Reload Human Cloud has done really well is find a lot of great talent. And, you know, uh, these are people that are highly educated, that uh, can provide a ton of value to a company like ours that otherwise we can't find here. And obviously it's at a, a high uh, or a extreme cost savings compared to what we could find here. So what we started looking for was how could we supplement what we currently do with the team overseas? And it started off for us from an accounting perspective. We, we have a lot of these things that are repetitive, task-driven, that just never end. And we know that, knew that our team was taking on a lot of work during the day, which was limiting our ability to take on new properties. And so we could either, we have a choice. We can hire another accountant or another staff accountant or promote somebody and bring that person on. But we're really just trying to solve, at first, a repetitive task. So when we reached out to Relay Human Cloud, we discovered that not only could we solve that problem, we could get a very qualified person that could not only do that, help support on a lot of other things. And so it, very quickly, it turned into we're trying to solve some repetitive tasks to uh, bringing on more and more team members that were actually helping us grow our accounting department without having to bring on a lot of people here. And so that that just continued to grow. So since then, we've brought on additional assistance, but it started with accounting. The benefit of having a team working globally is that you get the benefit of around the clock and it never ends. And so because we have a uh, team here working on things, obviously the time runs out during the day, but there's things that are going to, they're going to come into work tomorrow and they're going to have to start doing that again. One of those things, is, and a good example is cash reconciliations of every bank account. At Fort Capital, we have 50 bank accounts and there's cash reconciliations that have to happen every day. Well, that was something that locally a team had to come into work and start working on every day. Well, that just means there's other things they can't start working on. What happened uh, immediately with our team at uh, Relay Human Cloud was that overnight they were processing all those. They were doing all that accounting work on the back end so that when our team showed up in the morning, they could start on more important tasks that were happening happening locally directly related to the property. Mm. And that, that allowed us to uh, create efficiencies. And so that's just one benefit. You, we can go through a, a, an entire list of things that we have discovered that overnight can be done to help increase the efficiency of the accounting team. That, that extends beyond the accounting team. It also extends to the property management team processing invoices. So uh, Fort Capital, we have millions of square feet of industrial space uh, across the country. And 
with that, you have a lot of invoicing that's happening at all times. You, you could name a million things, whether it's paying bills, contractors, tenants, whatever it is, there's a, a million invoices being, and that can all be processed in India overnight so that when our team comes in, they're not spending their day processing invoices, which yep. allows us to get to more uh, proactive accounting measures so that we're using our accounting team to actually push the company forward, not uh, keep up with what's coming at us. Right. right. And so we found a ton of efficiencies um, by using or by having the 24 hour workday. So following that up, it was also important to us because that could have been done anywhere, but we wanted it happening under one roof with people that we knew that we worked with daily that were part of our team. And so as you think about these people that are halfway across the globe, it still doesn't seem like they're, it seems like they're in the next room over. Right. And and that that's a good point. And I think the, the what, what's important to understand there is that this group of individuals that are working in India are working directly for our team. They are a part of our team. They're in our systems. Um, they communicate with our team every day. They are not just an extension of our team. They are a part of our team. And so it is much, much different than if you go hire a third party service out there in the world that you're asking to process invoices, who you're having to send uh, critical or uh, important data to that is or might be sensitive, right? Um, information. We actually have all that internal and this team is a part of that internal team. And so it, it's a it's a much different way to look at outsourcing than if you're just outsourcing it even here locally in America. There's a risk there that you're uh, sending your data to somewhere else. This is all happening internally. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com.